So, you know, philanthropies and nonprofits are, by definition, there to serve the public good. And if we're there to serve the public and, quote unquote, do good for, for on behalf of the public, then I want to be disruptive in the sense of calling ourselves out as scholars, as practitioners, on what is the best way to do good. And it shouldn't always feel comfortable because if we're in it for more than just our own egos, it should shake us up um, and we should be willing to be shook up. Um, so that's what I hope from my own lens that his bill does. So I'm always cognizant of how to be a more thoughtful um, scholar and bringing different voices to the fore in our site, um, how to promote each other. And then also to have conversations that do question what it means to do good. Welcome to season three of Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord. Uh, Group Thinkers is the podcast from RKD Group, a leading data-driven multi-channel marketing and fundraising firm for nonprofits. Uh, hopefully by now you've checked out multiple episodes so you know that, but I like to always lead with that. Listen, on each episode, you know that we visit with a different innovator uh, in the nonprofit marketing space, someone who's doing something unique, uh, taking a different approach or has a unique perspective on the landscape of nonprofit marketing and philanthropy. On this episode, um, you're in for a treat because I have uh, an interview with Maribel Moray, one of the founders and editors of histphil.org, a blog on the history of the philanthropic and nonprofit sectors. That's histphil.org, H-I-S-T-P-H-I-L.org. If you haven't been there, I want you to go check out the site. Uh, you know, you can do it while you're listening to the episode as long as you're not driving uh, or running or wherever you are when you're listening to our episodes. Um, so, you know, among the different social networks and uh, landscape of social media and, and all that kind of stuff. Twitter has always been my go-to. For whatever reason, Twitter's been the one that I've been drawn to. It's, um, it's my source of news. Uh, it's oftentimes my source of entertainment. Uh, it is um, a companion for me as I binge watch shows uh, as I, you know, wind down in the evening, I like to read different articles and most of them I find through uh, how I've curated my feed and list and whatnot. Um, it's how I communicate with some colleagues across the sectors and industries. It's a, a place where I go to learn new things and Twitter is uh, the place where I found Histphil. Um, I'm really glad I did, to be honest with you. Their content, so the Histville content, is incredibly deep. Uh, they have so much deep thinking and provocative content, uh, interviews, book reviews, and editorial pieces about the larger global philanthropic landscape. Um, you know, at times the the content is a titch academic, and that that's that's actually a good thing. It's it's wonderful at how the Histville team evaluates the philanthropic space from a larger perspective, uh, drawing together deeply rooted trends that are happening now with things that have happened in our past 
And so it was on the basis of discovering and diving into that content that I reached out and uh, connected with Maribel and uh, so excited that she agreed to, to come onto the show. In addition to her role with the blog, Maribel is an assistant professor of history at Clemson University. And in fact, in this academic year, 2019-2020 academic year, uh, Maribel is the International Visiting Professor of Philanthropy at the ESBH School in Stockholm. So uh, she's great. She's got a very unique perspective that she's going to share on this episode. She's going to talk about uh, how Histville was born and why. Uh, and she's going to offer outlook on some global philanthropic trends that that she's tracking and thinking about. So uh, as we start 2020 and continue the third season of Group Thinkers, here's Maribel Murray. Awesome. Well, thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. I am thrilled today to be joined by one of the founders and editors of a blog that I discovered recently and have been uh, chomping through their posts ever since, the History of Philanthropy blog. Uh, Maribel Murray, how are you? Thanks for joining us on Group Thinkers. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me, Justin. Yeah, I, uh, I, I want to spend some time today talking about the, the blog itself, the origin of it, uh, your role as well as uh, your team members' roles. Uh, but first, I just want to start and uh, hear about your journey. And I've read some of your journey uh, from content off of the blog, and it's a truly fascinating uh, life that you've led that's gotten you to this point. If you wouldn't mind, just share with us a little bit of your journey and how you ended up as uh, co-founder and co-editor of the History of Philanthropy blog. Yeah, so as you probably saw, um, I was trained as a U.S. legal historian. Um, and I've always been fascinated by how do we create a public space, and invested actually too, in how to create a public space where um, its residents um, can feel um, dignified. Um, and treat each other with dignity. And whether we use the words equality or freedom, but basically how do we create that form of society? And that's a, that's a longstanding question for um, citizens invested in a democratic society, for example. So for me, having a historical lens to those very questions was important to me in law school. So while I was in law school, I thought of um, going into public interest law, but the historical lens uh, provided me some sort of context to realize that these are longstanding questions and the answers aren't quite simple and they require quite a bit of thought. Over time, I also started um, realizing and wanted to analyze further the power dynamics in the public realm, um, power dynamics of inequality. So even how we analyze, what does it mean to be equal? Is the answer, for example, leaning on the work of Derek Bell, um, who really inspired me in law school, is it segregation, integration? Is integration the answer to equality for citizens or are the answers more complex? Um, so in that realm of analyzing power dynamics and the complex questions of treating each other with equality and dignity and realizing each other's freedom, uh, I started following the money as well. 
So in graduate school, when I was at Princeton, uh, I was studying, heavily studying this book, which is, a, I'm writing a book about a book, which is Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma. And the more I researched the book, I wasn't as interested. I, I already knew I, I was pretty aware of its impact in U.S. society. But what fascinated me was that it was a project that was financed by a leading foundation. And why would a leading foundation, a result of wealth accumulation, be invested in shaking up the status quo um, and creating more equity for its citizens? So that was my starting point. And that was the beginning of the rabbit hole into the history of philanthropy, which uh, took me beyond the U.S. as well, because when you follow the money, money doesn't just stay in one geographic area. It's, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, you, you are, um, incredibly well-versed on history. And I, I love that that rabbit hole opened up for you. There's so many times that we're talking to, you know, leaders in the nonprofit space and, uh, consistently you hear that their journey, that it, it just happens upon them, that being connected into philanthropy just happens upon them. They didn't set out on a course to uh, to work in nonprofits or to work alongside nonprofit leaders or in philanthropy. And, and I love that, uh, you know, even as, um, as someone who's trained in law and in history, that this world opened up to you so that you could uh, learn about how um, social change is ultimately in some cases, funded by um, great philanthropists to to really summarize it in a very short way. So now, now we've got this this blog that you're a part of a, a team of uh, editors that, that create content about um, the power dynamics and about what's happening in global philanthropy. Tell us a little bit about the origin of the blog itself and. Uh, mm -hmm. And how, you know, the four main objectives of the blog come to life in the post. Yeah, so Stan Katz, Ben Soskis, and I started the blog together. And it, what seems to be, it happens a bit organically. I finished my PhD at Princeton in 2013 in the spring. And in the fall, I moved to South Carolina to start working at Clemson. And again, I was hired as a legal historian, but already quite committed within my dissertation, too, to analyzing philanthropy. Um, so Stan started emailing me and Ben, and we would start talking about recent pieces and connecting it to the history of philanthropy just in our own correspondence. Um, he started, I looked it up right now just before our phone chat, and uh, it, was, it seems like he started emailing us that very fall, like November 2013. And that was a lifeline because there aren't so many people who are in this or that we would know about um, who were invested in the history of philanthropy. So just having that dialogue between the three of us was a gift. And over time in these conversations, we thought, you know, it'd be really neat to start an online discussion and build a community of people invested in studying the history of philanthropy and also connecting it to... Um, philanthropic actors. I think you, you might get different answers from each of us, but we're all, again, I went to law school. Ben has been in publishing and Stan has been a foundation leader. So we're all, and for different reasons, invested in connecting academic 
um, field to um, contemporary questions. Um, and so how does the, uh, you know, this is, to your point, uh, each of the three of you have a, a slightly different take. Uh, and the, the URL, by the way, for, for our listeners is HISTPHIL, so H-I-S-T-P-H-I-L.org, HISTPHIL, uh, the History of Philanthropy. So th- this is, in, in your lens, it's a, it's a passion project, right? It started as a, a place to have conversation and discourse. And so, you know, how do you uh, maintain that? Um, how do you maintain, first of all, an active role in that, considering the number of projects that you have that you're working on? How do you make time for it? But, but you know, just talk about how um, this is still six years later, a, a passion project for you. Yeah. So first, one, <laughs> I realized that people were reading it when I was at Stanford one day in a seminar and someone made fun of the title, Hisville. And more than being bothered by that, I thought, wow, they actually know the title and they thought about it and they have time to make fun of it. That's awesome. <laughs> so um, <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> we're always pleased when we realize that people are reading and engaging with the pieces. Now, passion projects, I think at the heart of it, I'm very moved by why it's always a question of like, why did I even become an academic? So it comes down to that. So, you know, being an academic, you're not going to always be, um, what do you call it? Like celebrated for these different projects. Um, but why did I myself become an academic? And that's something that's always, I always come back to. And for me, it's trying, like I said before, how can we be good how can we create a good society for ourselves, for our communities, for each other? Um, and so being a good academic for me create, requires some camaraderie with other scholars and helping each other promote our work to each other. Um, going beyond the ego of oneself and promoting one's work, it's about community. If we're really in this for doing good, then we should be doing good together. Um, and then at, in the same level, connecting that to philanthropy. So, you know, philanthropies and nonprofits are by definition there to serve the public good. And if we're there to serve the public and quote unquote do good for for on behalf of the public, then I want to be disruptive in the sense of calling ourselves out as scholars, as practitioners on what is the best way to do good. And it shouldn't always feel comfortable because if we're in it for more than just our own egos, it should shake us up um, and we should be willing to be shook up. Um, so that's what I hope from my own lens that his bill does. So I'm always cognizant of how to be a more thoughtful um, scholar and bringing different voices to the fore in our site, um, how to promote each other. And then also to have conversations that do question what it means to do good in, in the sector. So that that's a continuous passion project uh, because as the history of philanthropy, at least the way I have leaned on the archives and the way that I see it today, this is still an ongoing task. Um, so one, one topic that keeps coming up for me is that the white savior syndrome was strong in the early 1900s, remains strong today. Um, and if we're actually there to do good, it shouldn't just be about the ego and seeming that, you know, 
white people are doing good for the world. But honestly, if we want to create good societies, how do we do that? And it likely means brushing that um, inclination to the side and growing beyond it. This episode of Group Thinkers is brought to you by the RKD Group blog. You might be listening on a mobile device right now, and if so, you can go ahead and open up a browser window and visit rkdgroup.com slash blog. When you get there, you're going to find all sorts of resources tackling issues that are current in the nonprofit marketing space. There's channel-specific resources focused on direct mail, digital, multi-channel, and even omni-channel. There's also hot topics like GDPR, mid-level, digital media, look back windows, and more. It's all over at rkdgroup.com slash blog. And now, back to Group Thinkers. You know, there's uh, there's an aspect to this, Maribel, that, um, that's the power that comes from the conversation, right? The, the, the change that stems from the conversation, the movements that are born from uh, being open to setting our own ego aside and just confronting those issues. I'm reminded of a, a conversation that I had in, in season two with Vu Lei, who is uh, executive director of Rainier Valley Corps uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. He's also the the voice behind nonprofitaf.com and you know, his, his whole perspective on the nonprofit hunger games that we spend so much time competing against one another as a sector, as opposed to challenging ourselves to how we can come together and make each other stronger to really create sustainable change. Uh, and so, yeah, that iron sharpening iron aspect that, um, happens and, and I'll, I'll give you a tremendous amount of credit. There are so many posts uh, that his soul has that really does challenge a status quo or it uses lessons from, uh, from the past to help understand something that's currently happening today. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll chat with an author or a blogger and uh, they will have started a project for one reason. And then that project takes them on a ride that they were not expecting, right? It, it transforms their perspective. And so, um, you know, you coming into this, uh, this project, this bill, Maribel, you have uh, a tremendous education and you're so well thought and well spoken, but I'm curious, has there been something through your work on his bill that has offered you a revelation or a uh, taking you on a journey that was unexpected as a part of your time? Yeah, I, um, so for one, it's that I think I sort of touched on it before that if we're going to use the two main, um, you know, philanthropists, like dominant literature, you know, you have Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller, though, of course, that could be challenged on who is a philanthropist and who should be celebrated as a philanthropist. But let's just say um, the questions that they were analyzing, um, like, for example, Andrew Carnegie in the Gospel of Wealth, um, what does it mean to 
what is a society that we should strive for? So he was trying to advocate in that piece a stable society that tranquilized the population sufficiently that they wouldn't turn to socialism as an alternative, for example. So philanthropy could serve that role in a capitalist society by redistributing wealth, though it would retain the incentives of a capitalist society by retaining that wealth in the hands of those individuals who made the wealth, quote unquote, instead of uh, through the state. Now, the, for me, it's that in connecting with contemporary, because that, that's what the blog has done for me as well. It's, I'm not in my own cocoon of the, acad- of the academy. So that opened up for me. It was greater engagement with practitioners today. Uh, so one of the first memorable ones is that I wrote a piece, not just for HISPIL, but one was for SSRC. Um, I'm sorry, not SSRC, SSIR, uh, the Stanford one. And Larry Kramer wrote in the comments. Um, so I was criticizing the Hewlett Foundation. So as I told him, I don't usually have foundation presidents writing back to me because they're usually dead, you know. But right, right. In, this kind of, <laughs> in this kind of setting, engaging with contemporary foundations, that's um, something that has opened up for me. And, okay, I'll, I'll deconstruct that a bit. For one, it shows me that some of the questions that um, past foundation leaders or leading philanthropists like Carnegie or Rockefeller were questioning are still relevant today. So the Hewlett Foundation trying to analyze what would be um, a game changer in political economy. How do we reshift or redesign a good society? So that's the question that Andrew Carnegie was confronting in the Gospel of Wealth and that the Hewlett Foundation is trying to rediscover through its political economy program. What is a good society that everyone will be game for, that everyone will buy into. Um, another thing that the blog has done for me is, so, so as much as like Kramer wrote, um, responded, we have another piece on his bill that another author wrote and Ford Foundation President Darren Walker saw it and he invited the author to come and chat with him. So that very live engagement um, shows a connection of historical analysis with contemporary uh, behavior in the philanthropic sector. So, yeah, go ahead. No, I think that that's, I don't know. Part of me is, is really challenged by the idea that we are, we should be further along. Uh, and part of me is uh, frustrated that, you know, some of the issues that you're talking about are issues that have dated back um, a hundred plus years, right? I mean, so, you know, uh, earlier you, you talk about the um, ultimately diversity inclusion and the makeup of uh, what the nonprofit landscape looks like and uh, underfunded organizations and leaders of color, et cetera, and that, that we're not further along and, and we do need more conversation to push us uh, into, you know, better areas there. So part of me is, is wrestling with this idea of, man, shouldn't we be further? And, uh, and then also really taken aback by how history is in some ways either repeating itself or, or that we're not advancing the sector. I mean, what do you, what do you see Maribel as the biggest challenges facing the nonprofit sector and the biggest challenges facing philanthropy today? 
I go back again and people are going to, I would say the touchiness of realizing that the white savior syndrome is still very strong. Um, wanting to be in control of change, want, uh, even if it's for other people, other communities, and not listening to other communities, not realizing that what it means to create an equal society is not to be to give a handout, it's to actually accept other people at the table as equals. Um, that's something that, as scholars, we consistently criticize early 20th century philanthropy for not doing. It's still prevalent today. So what does it mean? What would it mean for the philanthropic sector to shed itself of the white savior syndrome? And I think that is a central question. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a um, central question. And, and then you look at that and, and you tie that into, okay, well, advancing change versus um, living off of what you've, you've built and being able to continue to fund, you know, in the nonprofit space, not maybe less so in the foundation side, but in the nonprofit space of continuing the status quo because you've become dependent on that funding model versus breaking out of the status quo. And in some cases, what we're, we're talking about is a better definition of community, right? Uh, for equality and, and change. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's rather complex. So, so then you pair that up against, and I know that, you know, your lens is, is certainly, um, is not necessarily on the, uh, the nonprofit fundraising space, but when you look at in the fundraising space, the data privacy regulations that are popping up in California and Vermont and other states, or you look at the transfer of wealth that's happening now between, you know, the silent generation and the greatest generation down into Gen X and millennials through like legacy giving, plan gifts, et cetera. Um, you look at retention challenges in the nonprofit fundraising space that we're seeing less donors continuing to give year over year, plus the influence of new technology. Um, what can the history of philanthropy tell us about the next chapter of giving as we try to solve these complex issues like equality? Well, those are two separate questions. So one is whether philanthropy is actually invested in addressing equality. And that's, that's a really central question because um, wh what is equality if not seeing the other person across the table? And I mean, the, not only the grantee, but also the target audience for those grants as fully equal and capable human beings. And I think in the, in the immediate moment, not after some sort of process that you think they need to go through in order to get to your level of um, quote-unquote sophistication, but seeing that person as fully capable. So to what extent are you putting them through um, as a funder? That Are you putting that grantee under um, several layers of hoops in order to prove their value? So is that really treating that grantee as a fully capable human worthy of dignity and respect? Um, and then also within the, the base community that those grants are supposed to affect is the funder, are the funders and the grantees treating those communities with that same level of 
full human dignity and respect. And, um, respect. So I think that is uh, something that the philanthropic sector is going to need to address, not just because it is the right democratic thing to do, um, and that's uh, what we would assume we'd want in a society of fully uh, full human beings, uh, but also because there is, as we all know, uh, rising criticism of wealth inequality and the elites and elites driving change and what kinds of conservative change would elites be condoning. Um, so I, I, the next stage of philanthropy, I think um, philanthropic leaders need to answer, what are we doing? What are we here for? What role are we playing? Like, let's just be direct. What value added are we providing society? And it's the goal. There are different goals. And philanthropy has not always been, I wouldn't say, um, invested in equality. They've been much more invested in stabilizing society. And um, so are we here as a self-analysis as a philanthropic leader? Am I here to stabilize society and recalibrate the dominant group um, in a new equilibrium of domination over other groups? Or am I here to promote equality amongst different groups in society because that second option is destabilizing. So am I willing to destabilize society? And, you know, in so many ways, it goes back to even just from the foundational objectives of this bill, you know, encouraging groups to be more thoughtful about the sector and its role in the society. Uh, or its role in society. And so, you know, I, I really do admire that, that you and the team are challenging uh, status quo and challenging the historical aspects of how so much of the sector has been built um, to provoke, you know, um, conversation and to help build community. And would just encourage all of our listeners, again, check out hisfill.org. It's a, uh, a place where you can go deep into, uh, you know, reviews of um, current and past day works, uh, you know, interviews with foundation leaders and point of views from, you know, Maribel and, uh, and the other two founders, as well, as well as other guest posts from, the, from time to time. Maribel, um, you have a busy season in front of you. So just kind of as we wrap up, um, and so thankful for time with you today, just, uh, you know, give us a sense for, um, what's next for you, uh, this really cool opportunity that you've got coming up in, uh, this next academic year and where can folks connect with you online? Great. Thank you, Justin. So on Twitter, it's my first and last name. One, so M A R I B E L Moray, M O R E Y one. Um, that's the Twitter handle. And as far as next year, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very stoked. Uh, we're heading to Stockholm in a couple of weeks where I'm helping to lead up a center on the study of philanthropy and democracy um, at a university, ESBH, in the center of Stockholm. And there, uh, over the years, as you might know, um, European countries have been questioning the state as the sole provider of public goods. So one option has come up, obviously the private sector as an alternative uh, provider of public goods. And then also coming up in Sweden, the question of what is the nonprofit sector? Could that be 
the best of both worlds of providing options for public goods without having that um, profit-seeking motive, having more of the public good motive in mind like the state. So what would it mean to have the nonprofit sector grow in a country such as Sweden that values um, equal democratic citizenship? Then also, what role could philanthropies and philanthropists play in the public sector? Does that promote democratic life or undermine it? Again, those questions are quite a bit overlapping as in the U.S., but a bit distinct because especially in Sweden, they imagine that citizens should have an equal voice in shaping the public space. So how does uh, wealth concentration um, undermine that goal or promote um, that goal by uh, funding civil society? So yeah, we're going to be bringing teams of people across Europe together um, and Scandinavia specifically to um, build that research field um, within Sweden. And you're going to, you're going to solve all of those very complex questions on your Twitter feed, right? So as long as we pay attention to your Twitter feed over the course of the 2019, 2020 school year or academic year, you're going to solve all those things, right? <laughs> exactly. But actually to Unhistle, we are uh, invested in growing the scope beyond the U.S. So just recently, we had a forum on philanthropy in France. We've had one on Sweden. So as I spend time in Sweden this year, too, we hope to expand the scope of focus on Hispil further and further, uh, more globally. Maribel, I really appreciate you taking time to chat with us today and love the work that, that you and uh, and the team are doing over at Hispil and uh, can't wait to see what happens over the coming year as, you know, you you spend this time in Stockholm, uh, and, you know, as well as, you know, as you're working on your second book. And so uh, hopefully you'll you'll be back on down the road and share with us uh, the state at that time. Thanks so much, Justin. Thanks for having me. All right, Maribel, we'll catch up soon. Have a great day. You too. Okay, so there's the chat with Maribel Murray of histville.org. Uh, you know, there have been one or two episodes of the show where we've uh, we've intentionally stepped out of direct marketing or, or intentionally stepped out of the primary circle of nonprofit marketing where we tackle things like leadership, uh, you know, episodes that uh, with Lee Elias or with uh, Ryan Berman, episodes like that to where we tackle things around leadership and, and strategic planning that isn't about direct marketing proper or, uh, you know, Dr. Una Osley. Um, and, and this episode, like the episode with Dr. Osley, just help me and help us see the larger picture of what's happening globally in philanthropy. And I think that's important for us. I think it's important for us to understand our past, to understand future, uh, to understand the, uh, the trends that are happening in countries that uh, are around the world. And so um, really enjoyed this, this chat with Maribel and to hear her perspective. Would strongly encourage that you uh, dive into some of the content on histphil.org and uh, check out some of their the books that they recommend and uh, keep up with some of the studies. Uh, last thing, as always, connect with us. Um, you heard me at the outset talk about Twitter. Uh, would love to connect with you on Twitter and talk about this episode. Uh, you can also connect with us on Instagram 
at group thinkers on both of those platforms. So um, that's it. Tune in next week as we chat with a different nonprofit innovator, someone who's making a difference in the nonprofit marketing space. Uh, We'll see you then. See you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests, but it's the marketing efforts behind Group Thinkers. Suzanne, Ronnie, and others for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.